Hey guys, so welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm excited to be back with you guys. I know it's been a little while. I think the last episode we put out was in January. Um, so I apologize. This has been a really crazy year. We put on a big event in the um, in January, and that was why we kind of stopped recording a, a podcast for a while. After that, we decided to invest in creating a new product called the Return to Movement. It should be coming out right about now or have already come out, so you can check that out. We also then had, for the first time ever, we had three week-long seminars, and that ended up just eating a lot of our energy and time. And so it's been really hard to get back into regularly recording podcasts, which doesn't mean that we don't want to or we're not interested in it. We're super interested in it. Um, we've got really interesting things coming up. As I mentioned, we've got the Return to Movement that's out. Also, David Fuller from Rebel Wisdom came out, and John Verveke came out to return to the source this summer. And there is a documentary that's going to be coming out on their channel about that. Um, you may have seen, I also got a nice mention on the Lex Friedman podcast recently. So lots of cool stuff percolating, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to regular podcasting. I think I'll be starting to record regular episodes in October. This episode was actually recorded all the way last year, um, or maybe early uh, this year with Damien Walter, who is a sci-fi critic from The Guardian and various other outlets. Um, and he runs his own thing on, he runs his own sci-fi podcast. So I really enjoyed the conversation with Damien. It's actually been really fundamental to my thinking about something called mythos of recovery. I think that the, the narratives we live within are incredibly important. And I think that um, Tolkien's work, as we see, has had this enormous influence, but it's actually not that well understood and even though fantasy has taken the shape of tolkien in many ways it hasn't necessarily actually understood his underlying ethos and so that's what we get into in this conversation i think it's a really valuable conversation damien and i come from kind of different perspectives he's more towards the sort of a postmodern left and i'm more towards the anti-postmodern right but we're both trying to transcend some of our perspectives and it creates i think a very interesting grounds for a conversation. So that's what's going to be going on in this conversation. Also gives me a chance to just say hi and you know let you know about the upcoming uh, Rebel Wisdom documentary. Make sure to check that out. Um, so I don't know when we'll have regular episodes updating again. It's probably going to be in early November. We're going to start recording um, episodes again in October, but that's all kind of dependent on a few other things. So just remember, check out Return to Movement. Check out the David Fuller episode, and without further ado, um, or check out uh, sorry Rebel Wisdom and the documentary on John Verveke and Return to the Source. Um, and without further ado, here is my conversation with Damien Walters. Damien, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me, Rafe. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So you. Um, you and I met through Clubhouse, which we were just, you know, talking off off air has kind of died. But I, I don't, I, I, like, I feel like, you know, we got to know each other fairly well. We we're in a lot of conversations. And I've now listened to your podcast and listened to you on, on Rebel Wisdom. Um, but I'm just realizing that I don't have a good way to describe you professionally, right? So I know you, you wrote about science fiction for The Guardian. Um, you have a podcast. Um, tell people a little bit more about uh, how you became who you are and um, and we'll start there. Yeah, uh, sure. I, I might be very good at, uh, at moving on from careers, looking okay. at my looking back at my CV. So I, I mean, uh, whenever I 
have to describe myself, I get this flash from, do you remember the Goonies movie? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they kidnap the little punk and they're trying to get information from him and he tells them like that his entire life is in the <laughs> cinema. And I'm always worried I'm just gonna, you know, narrate everything. Um, but the, the relevant stuff is that basically um, early in my career, far too young actually, I started doing kind of arts-based social work with writing. Uh, and it was lots of stuff about storytelling and uh, what Jordan Peterson calls self-authoring. Yep. And I got really fascinated by like this intersection of culture and story and mental health. And I was working with lots of people who were in prisons, had serious mental health issues, uh, kind of on the, the borderlines of society. And they always seemed to have basically broken stories. So because I'm a writer and a storyteller and I was thinking about this, I basically went back to, to academia search story for about 10 years. Okay. Uh, and that for a time led me into teaching creative writing as well, which I was doing at University of uh, Leicester. And then I, also I was doing kind of uh, critical writing. So I was writing for places like The Guardian and The Independent about uh, stories, mostly science fiction, because I love science fiction. Yeah. And that led me into thinking as well about kind of myth-making, modern myth-making and storytelling. So for the last two years, I've been um, making a new course and studying the area of science fiction and how we kind of develop modern myths. Through. And this kind of storytelling and science fiction intersection has also led me into the sense-making community, primarily through the work of John Vivekey uh, and the way that I, I think potentially, you know, our stories are part of our, our making sense, of course, uh, and this thing, the crisis, uh, how we, we kind of shape things in the world. Uh, so hopefully that's, that's not a too confusing yeah, to the things yeah. that I've been doing. I think that's that's very cool, and it's you know I uh, I have a huge interest in storytelling. Obviously, my first professional ambition was to be a fantasy writer. Right, um, Tolkien was my was my big inspiration, uh, the mm -hmm. kind of the, the the turning point in my life uh, from a kid wow. who, who who had severe learning disabilities and had to be taken out of school to a kid who was passionate about learning. So that was a big thing for me, and I've always paid attention to the stories, and and then. You know, I became very interested in the logical aspect of, of the scientific worldview and being able to, to understand mechanically what's happening in sport. Um, but then I found that as a teacher, the, the technical scientific information didn't create the transformations that I was looking for in my students to the same degree that the story wanted to mm. deeper interest in the story and Jordan Peterson and John Bovakey. So you... I've heard you say that, you know, science fiction is our new mythology. And uh, mm. so I wanted to start with that idea. And I wanted to throw another quote at you, which is um, uh, R. Scott Baker is one of my favorite um, fantasy science fiction authors. He did a Reddit anime and his, you know, his headline quote was, if God is dead, then fantasy fiction is his graveyard. So. Tell me a little bit about what it means to you that if science fiction is our modern mythos, 
And, and what's your response to that quote from Baker? How do those things mm. work, perhaps? Yeah, sure. I mean, I use science fiction in a broad yeah. sense. And having basically lived online in the fantasy sci-fi community for, for yeah. decades now, in that community, we rehearse this relationship between these two things over and over again. And really, I believe it's all fantasy that yes. okay. we're all fantasy and all, all myth-making. And science fiction is this subset of that in which we develop fantasies and new myths that are specifically talking about uh, the age of science that we're living in. And we've been doing this. There was, there was actually a, a, a Twitter outrage thing about this because the, the New York Times book section tweeted that H.G. Uh, Wells invented science fiction. Yeah. Uh, and Twitter was like, no, it was uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Yeah. Which is kind of kind of true, but you know we go back to like maybe hundred years, maybe Frankenstein as the first kind of explicitly science fictional novel, and it also gives you a myth for the world. It gives you this like homunculus, Frankenstein's monster, mm -hmm. and that's the start of thinking about um, you know what is humanity in a scientific sense at least the start in the mythic area and you can kind of trace a line through Frankenstein into like the robot and the android and into Blade Runner and replicants and Westworld and all of these conversations we're really having about what it is to be human and probably into artificial intelligence as well like Frankenstein is kind of uh, an AI creation in a way and current conversations about you know, would an artificial intelligence need to be embodied, for instance, a kind of calling back to that yeah. uh, in a way. So I think that's that's what we're doing in science fiction. But there's also another direction you can go, which is kind of what I call at the moment capital F fantasy, because, of course, fantasy would be like any expression of inner desires. The idea of turning it into a genre is a bit limiting. But what we also have is this kind of creation of, of Tolkien, this uh, medieval world with uh, other races, elves and, and all. And then different riffs upon that that become this fantasy. And this in itself is like a fascinating creation because like, what are we doing when we go into virtual worlds? video games yeah we're continually stepping actually into this fantasy realm which is like a kind of alternate world that we're creating for ourselves, where we get to live out much more archetypal lives you get to actually go on your hero journey because it's not complicated by all the weirdness of the modern world we have uh now yeah um was it Tolkien himself who created the term alternative world fiction? I feel like that may have been a term he actually came up with. Um, I don't think he talked about alternate worlds or secondary worlds. Secondary worlds. Tolkien scholars may correct me. It's interesting where these terms come from because they kind of emerge out of uh, fantasy writing and role-playing games and then video games. Uh, a critic, an academic called Farah Mendelssohn, 
and she wrote a book called The Rhetorics of Fantasy, and it kind of outlines four kinds of fantasy that we indulge in as human beings. And one of those is the immersive fantasy or the alternate world, secondary world fantasy. And they're significant because everything in that fantasy world can represent symbolically like the psyche of the characters. So you can do that kind of reading at Lord of the Rings and you can take Sauron is like the oppressive superego, if you want to do it in a Freudian way. Um, uh, Frodo is like the self going on the journey. And you can make all of those readings of these secondary worlds, uh, which some people love. I enjoy that. Some people really hate it because it spoils uh, the immersiveness of the world, I think. Yeah, too. I think it's maybe there's, I've heard Verveke talk about this, but I think that he may have gotten it from uh, Jonathan Peugeot. But this idea that um, the distinction between a sign and a symbol. A sign is something that has a kind of very uh, simple one-to-one -one relationship with what it signals. Mm. So a stop sign has a, it's very collapsible, right? Mm -hmm. A symbol is, the power of a symbol is it's not, it's not collapsible, right? Yeah. The more you look at it, the more aspects of it you can see. Yeah. So we can, we can, you know, we can talk about uh, Frodo as, as the you know the representation of the self and it's true but it's not it's not fully true right it's not the only truth right? and tolkien's or um frodo is a deeply christian right he's a deeply hmm. he's a christ figure very much um but that's also not all he is either right mm -hmm. and so there's there's these layers to it i've been i've been kind of like I recently read uh, The Wisdom of Crowds by uh, Joe Abercrombie. Have you read The Wisdom of Crowds? No, I've read some of Abercrombie's uh, earlier. Okay. Uh, so Abercrombie's debut mm -hmm. was um, The Believe Itself, which was the first yeah. of three books called uh, The First Law Trilogy. Mm -hmm. And I think Abercrombie is in many ways representative of what's happening in fantasy fiction right now mm. and i think that it's very much sort of there's something about it that to me is uh it's really representative of the meaning crisis in a way um so i think abercrombie and baker both like they, they kind of sit in a very similar place i think in baker it's more spelled out philosophically right he he gives you more more breadcrumbs to go find right what all this is but essentially they're both i think nihilistic they're both attracted to mm. the meaning systems of of something like tolkien and the mythology that his work comes from but also are are horrified by it right and, and baker is very is very explicit about this right that 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 we we crave the the kind of objective meaning structure that existed in a pre-modern context but from a modern moral standpoint we can only see those things as as um as as monstrous right and when we when we go into fantasy we can we can kind of escape in a way that that allows us to 
to kind of be there, but without really confronting mm. what it was. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I think Baker is basically, he's horror, right? It's a horror story, you know, which is another aspect of, of the development of speculative fiction, because obviously, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel, it's definitely one of the first horror novels as well. Sure. Yeah. Right? And all these things. They all arrived together. wrapped together. Right. And so Baker is, Baker's is a fantasy novel at first blush. It's also a science fiction novel, mm. right? It's very much about the intersection of, you know, it's, a, it's about the consequences of science mm -hmm. and it's about existential horror. But, um, oh, too much to say. Um, so back, <laughs> back, to, uh, back to, to, to Abercrombie for a second. He said something really, I, I, was, well, I was reading an interview with him and I think he said something that really kind of captured something that's happening in, in modern fantasy fiction. Which he said, the kind of the original inspiration for the first draw of trilogy was the idea of what if Gandalf didn't have a divine mandate, right? If you understand like the backstory of Gandalf in the Silmarillion and in the Tolkien legendarium, he's literally an angel who's been physically embodied, who mm -hmm. serves the will of God on high, right? Mm -hmm. And he he is a he's a vehicle of providence, right? But if you strip that away, you have this mysterious, super powerful manipulator who comes and goes through kingdoms and takes himself right to the highest um, power and manipulates them, right? If you, if you strip the divine providence, then you have this, this kind of horrific figure. So the first Raw trilogy is really about what if Gandalf was, was, just, was just a power mad craziness. Mm. And, you know, what if Aragorn was a serial killer? Right? Or, <laughs> of course, yeah. Right. Or what if Aragorn was 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 not actually Isildur's heir. He was just some handsome idiot who uh, who had been selected by the powers that be to be, you know, the next puppet. Yeah. So this is the story. And at the end of it, right, nothing is morally advanced. So then he moves the story forward to, it, it moves forward 60 years between his first and second trilogy. But the first trilogy happens in basically like a late medieval type of environment. And the second trilogy mm -hmm. happens during is what's essentially the industrial revolution. And so he's, he's, he's illustrating like workers revolutions. There's a point at which he literally puts the words, you know, I think it's like, we the people find these truths to be self-evident or something like that. Like it's almost, mm -hmm. it's almost that level of quotation. And then the characters just reject the idea, right? And so he has the words of the founding fathers of the America coming out of these incredibly one-dimensional um, villainous characters. It was very distasteful to me. Um, but at the end of it, basically they, Gandalf is sort of, the, the Gandalf character is in retreat and but what you realize is that the power that replaces him is just as horrible, just as manipulative, 
and that with like one exception, every character has essentially ended up just as moral as they started. They've learned nothing. Mm. So now we're six books into reading about this world. And I just realized that like, I love the man's writing. I think it's incredibly, you know, incredibly vivid, right? He writes the mm. best action scenes in all of fantasy, has really vivid characterizations a lot of the time. And um, it's the plotting is super great, but then there's no, at the end of it, it's just nihilism, right? It's like, I can't, I can't root for this bad guy to beat that bad guy. Sure. And so I, I was just thinking about that in reference to this idea that there's something very broken in our storytelling currently. Mm. And I started thinking, started going back, like, well, when, like, how did this evolve? Like, it seems like post-Tolkien, a lot of stuff was just derivative and not very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's like, I think, like, I, I was thinking in the fantasy realm, it's like, um, the Dragonbone Chair, Tad Williams, Austin Arts uh, series, is like the first kind of post Tolkienian, very Tolkien lit yep. fantasy yeah, yeah. that really succeeds. Mm-hmm. And he sets the groundwork that then Martin takes off with. And you get mm-hmm. Martin and Abercrombie and Baker and all this like very Tolkien like fantasy mm-hmm. that is actually very, like, really high, really, I think there's like, um, highly dedicated, extremely skilled artists are now devoting themselves in literature to delivering this type of content, Mm -hmm. which really didn't happen after Tolkien for a long time. It's like Tolkien's what, 1957, I think is when the Lord of the Rings comes out. And uh, I think the last, or uh, I think that um, Austin Art Series starts in maybe 1984. Mm. So, where am I going with this? <laughs> well, I find that um, there's, a, there's a few different strands in like the evolution of our modern storytelling yeah. here. So an argument I make a lot is that I don't find genre to be an appropriate label for fantasy or science fiction or horror. Yeah. Uh, and I talk about them as, as an alternate literary tradition. Yeah. And we we actually need as storytellers to create this literary tradition because what has happened in, call it mainstream literature over the 20th century is um, it's moved into like the postmodern, essentially. It's telling stories which have kind of uh, gone so far beyond cynicism uh, into nihilism and kind of complete, complete emptiness. And it's very difficult for, for anyone who isn't kind of deeply in the culture that is engaging with that literature, which is kind of our culture around our academic communities, essentially. Yeah. That's why the campus novel is the literary novel. It's very difficult for anybody else to engage with this. So we've mostly abandoned it. Like almost nobody is reading the mainstream literary novel. Mm-hmm. So you can barely call it mainstream in that sense. So what we start doing instead is kind of picking up our childhood fantasy worlds um, where we went reading The Hobbit, for instance, you know, when we're six, seven, eight, nine, whatever age it is. And these worlds are, you know, I think are explicitly symbolic Mm -hmm. uh, because 
you know, as, as children, we deeply need that. So I guess the Wizard of Oz is like the clearest case. So this is something like the 1920s, you know, and you can see very clearly how um, uh, Dorothy goes into Oz and her psyche is broken up into the different characters. It's all very explicit. So that's kind of there in the story and you take this away. Uh, in this, this map of the different kinds of fantasy, that's a portal fantasy. Your, your psyche is leaving the real world into portaling into a fantasy world. Um, but then what do we want? You know, we have these landscapes, whether they're in Tolkien's secondary world, the kind of more feral portal worlds. So intelligent artists say, well, this kind of realistic tradition isn't serving anybody. So I'm going to pick up these fantasy landscapes and start evolving them. And this probably you know, starts with a new wave in the UK, like Michael Moorcock's takes on fantasy, and then Ian M. Banks and the culture kind of deconstructing uh, space opera in that way. And then it kind of cuts back into fantasy exactly with those authors that you're saying, Tad Williams, George R. R. Martin, Joe Abercrombie. And it kind of gives you, I guess it's loosely labeled like Grimdark. Grimdark. Now, because as, as we start articulating like adult psychological in these landscapes, it inevitably becomes kind of grim and dark in the process, produce much more violence uh, into this. Um, but there's a problem there, isn't there, that these are kind of like uh, sacred symbolic landscapes and it feels uh, somewhat sacrilegious to do this with them. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think my problem is that it feels sacrilegious. Mm -hmm. What it feels is meaningless, mm -hmm. right? Because yep. they're playing with the symbolism, but I don't think, I think the problem is postmodernism still, right? I think mm. that fundamentally, like, like to me, Abercrombie or Baker or these guys, like they, they want to play in, in the grave of God, but they don't believe in God. Right. So yep. you there's no there's no moral lesson in some sense. And there's no character growth. Like I, I was reading something that was saying that fundamentally, like what matters about a story isn't isn't the setting, right? Settings are sort of immaterial. It's how characters change. But the setting is sort of the window dressing. Mm -hmm. um, but you're looking for something that tell that helps you recognize a truth about the human experience that mm -hmm. is revelatory or transformative for you so around the time that i read uh before i read um the most recent abercrombie book i read a book called um monster calls which is also a movie um and i highly highly recommend both have you ever seen mm -hmm. either of these uh i'm trying to remember the name of the author patrick yeah, Patrick Ness, and he set up like it was a half-finished book yes, by a female author. Concept by Chauvin O'Dowd, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so this story, um, it's a it's a meditation on grief, mm. um, but it's told. I mean, it's kind of a fantasy novel. It is. It's a sort of like this little this boy who's I think eleven years old at the time of the story. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a a giant tree monster. Mm -hmm. right it's an old yew tree and 
you know, the tree has come walking and it, and it tells him a story, it tells him three stories over three nights. And then the last night he has to tell his story to the, to the tree. And then at the same time, all these things in his life happen that then connect to the stories. But there's a real transformation in that character. Like that character experiences a transformation that's profoundly meaningful. And as, as a member of the audience, I'm a different person having read it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, it, it's actually painful to read. It's not, it's not easy at all. And I think that's what's, what's strange to me is like, you know, Moorcock hated Tolkien, right? Um, Sorry, my camera died. Um, he hated Tolkien because he was a, a political radical. Tolkien is an arch conservative, right? Um, yeah. And, and religious. So, why do I bring that up? The, the, it's definitely relevant. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. this, there, you know, the world, the world view of Tolkien and Lewis is it's it's kind of like there's something in it to me that's fascinating because it seems like it's like the worldview of Peterson and Pajot mm-hmm. or Ravaki and yeah. it or or even you know Bishop Barron, right? So mm-hmm. you know we both watched this recent four horsemen of meaning conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fascinating. And one of the things that's been really that I've been grappling with in these conversations is the idea that like the Christianity that was my enemy as a young atheist is, is really a kind of historical aberration in some sense, mm. right? We have the, we have this fundamentalist evangelical Christianity, which is, which is very strange, right? Um, but it's kind of, it, somehow it dominated the culture waves in America for, I don't know, maybe the later half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the reaction to it, and you have this this back and forth between the you know, it's like a man. I, there's so much here that I'm trying to to to, to bring together. I also just recently read um, Chaos by Tom O'Neill, which is a story mm-hmm. of uh, the Manson murders and all the mysteries around the Manson murders and why the official story is probably not real and how there's a really good connection with the CIA chance that the CIA was connected into it through. MKUltra, mm-hmm. Contel Pro, COINTEL Pro, and how the CIA was experimenting on American citizens with LSD and how all this connects to what was going on in the 60s, right? So I grew up in the counterculture and I'm like, the counterculture was effed and it's <laughs> super, uh, you know, super deluded and misled. And I still see the same psycho- uh, psychedelic narcissism as Jamie Wheel has called it. Um, it's still playing out. It's like, we're still... We still haven't solved mm-hmm. the problems that arose in the 60s. Like we're still, those, those archetypes are still with us, you know? Like mm-hmm. nobody's a flapper, right? Like, you know what a flapper is? 1920s dancing. Yeah, but it's yeah. like, it's like, a, it's like a, a subculture, right? Or like, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. zoot suits and swing dance, right? Like that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that occurred for like half a second in the 90s again. But it's like, it's part of a cultural <laughs> DNA that's really disappeared or beats, right? But hippies mm-hmm. are still around, right? I was just in mm-hmm. Hawaii. I was just on the beach in Hawaii 
with a drum circle and people naked mm-hmm. wearing wings and lights and dancing and smoking marijuana like the that that cultural split hasn't been solved mm. right? and the counter reaction to it seems to be in some sense I, I feel like evangelical christianity is very weak right now culturally right the fact that like QAnon has been able to sort of eat up so much of the airspace on the right to me is like mm. it's a real sign of how evangelical fundamentalism has failed because there's no the moral majority of the 1990s couldn't possibly have approved of trump as their as their flag bearer right mm. and yet it's here now right and just like there's this incredible strange religiousness to wokeism right the getting you know white people getting down on their feet, uh, getting down on their knees and washing the feet of black people on the street after the George Floyd killing, right? I've walked through Seattle and seen altars. They're just altars. Like there's no other way to describe mm-hmm. them. Like George Floyd's sure. name, Tawana Bradley's name, and <laughs> strange mirrors and upside down animals and like, you know, just crazy weird totems, right? Um, well, we've done this before. <laughs> you know, if, if you think about what Christianity is, we think about Christianity as a Middle Eastern religion, mm-hmm. but Christianity is a Roman religion. Yeah. You know, a Christianity is the ideology that um, one part of Roman society used to demolish another part of Roman society by saying to them, look at who you are, look at how evil the Roman Empire is, that it went over to this country and it took the Son of God and nailed him to a cross. So what we're, is that, what we're uh, doing with, yeah. with like social justice causes is exactly the same argument. Is it's it, the same I mean, culture war I don't, playing I don't, out. I don't feel like there was a sense of guilt. Like I, I, don't, I haven't read historical accounts where like Romans were guilty about. Yeah, no, late Roman history, it's, it's all the same stuff that plays out basically because you have an emergent, uh, middle class who are simply not very rooted to the reality of how all of this wealth comes mm-hmm. to them in Rome. Uh, and they start really objecting to the, the, the militarism of the Roman Empire. You know, they don't have all of the same tools to do it, but essentially you're looking at the same kind of, because um, really you can say that Rome had like advanced to a, a low technology version of modernism it had all of the political structures, uh, the democratic structures, you know, it was able to project itself militarily. And then it started to make the same advance into the postmodern, the people who are deconstructing the narrative of the society as kind of a power play on their, their behalf. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that story. So I'm, I'm curious to hear mm-hmm. about this. Like, who's an example of a a Roman deconstructionist. Who's who's the Derrida of late Rome? I can't give you all the all the details. It's the the shape of the story that I see when I look at it, and that's why when we make this comparison between religiosity and what's happening with like social justice causes at the moment, I think that's why for me it seems like. Uh, an extension of our developmental stages 
that we keep going through this this civilizational mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and we can see it crashing repeatedly because the level of internal conflict within the civilization becomes so great that it can't function effectively anymore i think there's truth to that i, I think i would mm. frame it maybe a little bit differently i don't think if you read augustine or you know, the church fathers that mm. you will you will see a kind of shame and romanitas right mm -hmm. i don't think there's the idea that like rome has this carries this special burden of the blood of christ i've never seen that and i think mm -hmm. that in some sense like you know if you look like tom holland's argument like the 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 the, the mind of the pre-christian of pre-christian rome is very different from anything we would recognize as modern it's, it's mm -hmm. modern the modern mind is 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 actually so conditioned on christian priors that we have a hard time recognizing what a worldview that's not conditioned on Christian priors really looks mm. like. That's one of his big points in, in like Dominion. Um, but there is this sea shift, right? Like Razib Khan is a, a friend of mine, someone I really like. He, he constantly subtweets um, wokeism by, by, by quoting stuff from the Roman period and talking about the idea of like pagans, right? Mm. And, and how they, the late pagans were you know, how they might have responded to the takeover of their institutions by Christians. Mm -hmm. Like Jonathan Peugeot would say that it's kind of like Christianity, or what Peugeot would say is that Christianity brought the margin in, right? It made the margin morally relevant in a way that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. right? If you look at, if you look at what was going on in the Greek city-states or Rome, the, the slaves were not considered morally, you know, they, they had very little moral standing, right? Mm -hmm. The rights of citizens over, over the margins were more extreme. So you had this hierarchy, and emperor, emperor at the top and citizens and mm -hmm. then everybody else. And, and it was like, there was no moral, there was very little moral um, moral extension to the margins. Sure. But yeah. then you had this story, which was of a person who was of the margin, right? Exactly. Yeah. Crucifixion is 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 the death of a thief, right? It's the most shameful type of death that you could experience. So the idea that the redeeming king is also someone who's been crucified was was completely revolutionary. Mm. And it's fused, uh, hmm? and and it's fused with an archetype, yeah, the the Christos archetype. So it's the lowest person who's given the the highest mythic role, which it's usually a, would have been like the inherited king of a society yeah. who had that role. Yeah, yeah. Anointed is what you do to kings, right? You anoint the king. So mm -hmm. he, Christos means the anointed one. So you have the anointed one, who's also the criminal who died on the cross. Um, and so there's something in Christianity that, that, that unites the margin with the center. It unites mm -hmm. the bottom with the top. And, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. And the, there's kind of like a way to parasitize that story, which is to, which is to just invert the hierarchy place the margin at the very top mm -hmm. and so i don't know if i would say that that 
that they experienced something quite exactly like modernism collapsing into postmodernism. But they experienced a revolution and it was around mm -hmm. themes that are also playing out now. But perhaps, and I, I tend to believe this, I think the Christian story more fully, more fully connected how we should actually act as a society and as individuals. Mm. Because it's a redemption story. The problem with wokeism is there's no redemption. And it's a story that, that, that's, that says there is a necessity for hierarchy. You can't just invert. You still need a king. Right? You still need the image of the king. You still need to mm. top. Um, and you, you need to render unto Caesar what is for Caesar and render unto God what is for God. Like it's a, mm. There's much more sophistication, I think, to that idea. But you could speculate that that is the a later revision of early Christianity, that Christianity gives you the revolutionary story, which is powerful enough to, to topple a, an empire, essentially. And then to, to kind of tame that story, you get it uh, reshaped kind of back into a hierarchy. So Christ is made, you know, uh, it's one of the changes that happens, and Alan Watts makes this argument, is that early Christianity is uh, the story that any human can achieve the transformation of Christ. That's why you're following the story. And then later on, he's made the son of God. Mm -hmm. So now only Christ has that role. And this can only happen to people later. So it's kind of, you take a radical narrative and you make it conservative again to, to tame that. Yeah, perhaps. I, I mean, mm. I think that's pretty speculative, right? Mm. <laughs> like, I think maybe Alan Watts's hippie egalitarianism coming through there. Because like, when, when does Christianity really start taking off and becoming a power in the world? Does it take off when it's in this supposed radical stage or after Paul and Augustine and these church fathers? Um, I don't know the history exactly, but my speculation is that, so I mean, Christ dies in 33 BC or something like that, mm. BC. When does Paul of uh, Tarsus have his, his big revolution? I can't remember, but it's, it's not that much later, but I think a lot mm. of Christianity comes out of that. And then mm -hmm. it's another 150 years, maybe, or 100 years at least, until Christianity really starts to become a force of the empire, if I understand mm -hmm. So I think a lot of that taming of the radical narrative, if that's exactly what happened, happened before Christianity became the force that moved through the empire. Yeah, of course. It, it would have been hard to even call it Christianity early on in the way that we understand it. But there is something very relevant here because we're talking, I think, about, um, you know, our choice in fantasy of kind of we can re-sculpt really in like the modern of, you know, a, an emptiness of, of values, essential or postmodern, or we can go back to Tolkien's yes. vision. And that's what Tolkien is doing. Tolkien is, is saying this, this modern world is is lacking the meaning that we need. So we find it by going back to the ancient myths, mm -hmm. uh, their symbolic meanings and recasting them into a form that is kind of uh, acceptable to, to audiences. And, you know, it, it's hard to know, well, Tolkien was very deliberate. He, he 
understood on many levels what he was doing. And it's this incredibly effective, um, uh, what would you, I, I don't want to call it regressive, but um, conservative revolutionary strategy to put back into the world and all of those values of, of uh, Christianity. The position that we're left in now as fans or readers is like, which do we believe is the right strategy for us to regain meaning? Is it this reclamation of the old myths or this kind of shaping of new fantasies and the kind of nihilistic grimdark shape? Yeah, for me, there's no question, right? Like the moral vision of Tolkien is unmatched mm. in the fantasy fiction world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that like, I think there's a lot of ways in which for me, Baker is superior to Tolkien, that I think he is the most profound sort of argument in a fantasy fiction context. Mm -hmm. his, there's just so many things about the way that he does that series that I think are extraordinary and what he's calling forth, like the battle scenes that he writes and the way that he uses these, these you know, he says, death come, came swirling down. Death came mm -hmm. swirling down, and it calls to mind the Iliad, right? And he's doing that very intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but ultimately, you know, his whole thing is that we're just we're blind to our motivations. We have no free will, and we are we are we are our meaning systems are collapsing, and we all you know, destroy ourselves as far as I can tell, right? There's, there's no hope, there's no redemption in that storyline at all. Uh -huh. um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that's the right message, right? Like I think mm, that I yeah. can, um, it, I think that I'm fascinated by Kelhus and Maurer and uh, Confass and all these people, but mm. I'm not a better man, you know? I, like I'm not, I, I won't try, I'm not embodying them. But I feel like who I am is shaped by Frodo and Aragorn. Yeah, it has to be. Right? It has to be. Uh, I don't know how we can operate as, as human beings without that core uh, uh, heroic identity. Yeah. Like this is a part of our psychology that, that has to form. Or we're left very weak and unable to like um uh there's this moment in in the marvel movies right you know, the the end game avengers end game so like the the real climax of all this storytelling yeah. they've been doing and captain america just being beaten up by Thanos, uh and then all of like the armies of humankind emerge around him to support him and Thor's hammer flies across the field and he catches it and when it see this moment like an audience watching it they go absolutely crazy watching yeah. this moment because it's the awakening of this part within us that we really need but that we have to tame as well like our the early formation of our heroic personality is very egoic as well mm -hmm. potentially very violent uh, so we do a lot in our society to to harness that identity but you can't not have it you can't not have an inner Aragorn. And like Aragorn is the, um, the ideal version of how that manifests in the world. And that's 
why we're so drawn to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we wouldn't give kids, I hope, like Joe Abercrombie's novels. No. You know, because what kid are you going to get out of storytelling? And he has done some young adult writing. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you don't want you don't want your son to grow up to be Logan Ninefingers. Um, <laughs> or, or, or God forbid, Calhoun. Um, but we've probably done this in our storytelling now because we've I think we've degraded it to such a level that it's probably producing lots of very unhealthy psych psychological formation yeah. uh, in kids as, as we're coming into the world. You know, when I start to think that way, I become like arch conservative uh, and feel like we should take everyone under the age of 12 and bring them up in like uh, <laughs> uh, religious communities where they can have a good sense of like self and a strong narrative to grow up in. Uh, and only even bring them into modernity, like at some later point when they go off to college or something. So, I, I you know, I'm not, um, I, I've described myself as a non-theistic Christian. That's mm -hmm. a, it's an interesting formulation. I think it's more or less true. It's a new thing. You know, I'm, I would have described myself as, as an atheist up until maybe two years ago, three years ago. Mm -hmm. Like I remember when, um, when Jordan Peterson published the biblical lecture series, I said to my wife, mm -hmm. I might be a Christian at the end of this. Um, and he published it and I, I wasn't, right? I was not a Christian. Mm -hmm. I, I was fascinated. It was great. Um, it transformed me in really powerful ways, but I wasn't ready to go to church. You know, for Bakey's episode on agape, mm. more towards Christianity than Sure. At least that one episode is probably as powerful as as the whole biblical series for me personally. Mm -hmm. Is it articulated what what I needed? Um, but for some reason, like the commercialization is something I have. You know, having grown up in that counterculture, I'm very sensitive to commercialization. The fact that like so much of Christmas is just is just you know consumption driving me. Mm -hmm. You know, a little bit nuts and i'm like well, well let's let's actually like pay attention to the christ story during christmas mm -hmm. and so a few years ago and i think my daughter my son was four my daughter was five maybe i just showed them an animation of christ right like christ, the biblical story it was a really low budget thing that i found on youtube right like but they were utterly enthralled by it and they were talking about it for ages afterwards and they were asking me do you believe in god right and it, 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 it moved them, right, in a way mm. that was really profound. And then I, um, you know, I read Harry Potter to them, which I think Harry Potter is such a Christian story that <laughs> people don't realize. It. It's really funny. <laughs> really funny. All the Christians like, oh, the witches, you know, the fundamentalist Christians are <laughs> freaking out about it. But like, ultimately, it's like just a retelling of Christ's story. Um, mm. But my daughter is now on her fourth. She's like. She's in the, on the fourth book for her fourth read of it at nine years old. So she, I read it to her. She read it to herself or no. Yeah, she read it to herself. Maybe these are third read of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but she read the whole thing this summer. And now she's reading it again. Because <laughs> I'm reading it to my son. So we're on the, the second book and she's already on the fourth book. Like as soon as I pick mm -hmm. it up, she's reading it again. Um, those stories are really meaningful. 
And I watch like, you know, the modern, I don't like what Disney's doing right now at all, right? Like mm -hmm. this, this re retelling everything from a feminist perspective um, is not, it's not good storytelling. Mm. And there's, no, there's very little for a boy to get out of it, right? Like my son, like, there's, no, there's nothing for him to aspire to in, in Frozen or Brave. Mm. I, I like Moana a lot better. You know, I had a conversation with John Badger about why I think Moana is actually a really profound movie. But, um, but yeah, there's these stories, you know, they're not, there's, there's, there's not much there. So mm. I take my kids back and we watch The Secret of Nim, right? Um, we watch movies from my childhood, uh, Man from Snowy River, right? And that to me, those stories I think still have more power. Mm. But I wanted to, I wanted to, there's something I really wanted to get into because, so we, we kind of said Grimdark is, I think Grimdark is postmodernism. Right, it's not. It's not postmodernism in the sense of like postmodern literature in the way that it's written. Right, it's not Kerouac. It's not, you know, Infinite mm. Jest. It's 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 written in a kind of traditional story structure. Right, so they haven't rejected the structure of story, but they've emptied it of its moral architecture. Mm -hmm. They don't believe. They, I think the authors of Grimdark fundamentally like cannot believe in the archetypes. They cannot believe mm -hmm. in the good. They have no theory of the good. And so that's what comes out, yeah. right? There's no, there is no good. But I think mm -hmm. if you don't have a theory of a good, you can't move towards the good. Mm -hmm. So ultimately a story that doesn't have, doesn't have an ethic of the good in it, is kind of useless, right? Um, yeah. So, so, so where's the aspiration? And you said something in your interview with Rebel Wisdom that was really interesting mm. because I, I, I've come to see more and more of like our stories that we have as religious stories, right? Mm -hmm. like wokeism is, is, it's a theory of sin, right? Like uh, Scott Alexander wrote this really beautiful article called The Godlessness That Failed. Have you read this? No, tell me. Highly recommend it. But he traces how online atheism basically just became social justice. Mm. It just yeah yeah right like now you mm. have Sam Harris who's who's obviously a critic of the critical social justice perspective and he's still mm. sort of a a holdout for the older atheist perspective or Richard Dawkins. But if you look at like the big online hubs of, of new atheism. Mm. There was a point where they all switched to atheism plus and atheism plus was mm -hmm. atheism plus social justice, anti-racism, you know, LGBTQI uh, acceptance, et cetera. And then pretty soon it was just plus, there was no, <laughs> there's no atheism anymore, right? It was no <laughs> longer meaningful. So, you know, yeah. a figure that, that people can look into if they're curious about this is, um, P.Z. Myers. P.Z. Mm -hmm. Myers starts as a, as a science blogger talking about biology. Then he gets really involved in the creationist, atheist wars of the early aughts, right? 
And then there's a point at which everything that he publishes is social justice and just attacking the other tribe as evil. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so what he says is that essentially new atheism was a, was a failed theory of sin, a failed hamartiology, right? The theory of sin was religion is the problem. And if we get rid of religion, then everyone will just be rational. Mm -hmm. And there, were, there was a point where that, that kind of, it didn't, it didn't sustain itself anymore. And then the new theory is the problem is white people and men, right? And heterosexuals. And so that's the new, that's the new thing, right? White privilege, which has, has, you know, there's truth to the narrative, right? It's not a narrative that has no truth. Right. There's lots of historical racism and, and even you know systems that are currently possibly still biased, but but what it what it's done is sort of replaced the idea of original sin. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, maybe what we could uh, replace the word culture war with is culture chaos. So what we've done is we've taken a period of probably even through into the 70s and 80s where it was very difficult to really get out of your culture wherever you rooted you know whether it was like a mormon community or yeah. where i up in like a, a post-capitalist commuter belt just outside london you know you just were where you were and then we throw the internet and smartphones at people and we're all being given the entirety of everybody's cultures at the same time all the different tiers of those cultures as well so like there was quite a clear point that I saw because I studied a lot of postmodern theory at university and then I forgot it and I thought it was dead and I was never gonna think about it again and then like intersectionality and a bunch of related ideas just appear on the internet because certain groups of people and individuals find them and they have kind of strategic use for them in their online documents so they start deploying them so now we're all like in a massive pinball table, bouncing off these different bits of culture and we make decisions about it. So somebody like PZ Myers is like, uh, I'm just gonna guess, you know, very rooted in modernism. And then you start to hit like the internal contradictions of this and its failings. So you make some decisions, you either kind of retreat to a conservative position. And I'd say this is the roughly Jordan Peterson place or uh, let's not call it retreating, but you know, that's a place to go or another place to go is into social justice. And you start doing this social justice direction because it's an answer to whatever was wrong with your more limited worldview before. And I see us all kind of going through this at the moment and ad hoc online forming new tribes about it as well. Yes, the, the mimetic tribes, right? I think mm -hmm. you remember talking yeah. about that. Um, so one of those tribes that, one of the things, so to go back to the, the conversation you had with Revolution, you laid out how science fiction, I mean, I guess if you talk with, about Shelley, it starts with actually the kind of fear of modernism, right? Mm. It's, mm. A, it's, a, it's, the, it's the original story of the mad scientist. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea is that all of a sudden, you know, I'm not sure who framed this, but you hear a lot of people in these intellectual dark web spaces talking about this idea. And, you know, 
we have become gods, but for the wisdom. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. I mean, that's Frankenstein, right? Yep. Dr. Frankenstein achieves the power of the God, which is mm -hmm. the creation of life. He's stealing fire, literally. Stealing fire. Prometheus, stealing fire. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then what does he do, right? He rejects his creation. And by rejecting, he makes it a monster. Mm. Which also has an interesting sort of, there's a, there's a recursion there of almost like, well, is that our relationship to our creator? Is that how we feel about our relationship mm -hmm. to the idea of our creator? But, but it starts there, but then there's this, this you, you talked about the idea of a sort of techno optimism, right? Like there, mm. we're gonna go colonize the stars. There's gonna be civilizations on Mars. We're gonna interact. Mm -hmm. And then there is this point at which it's like, well, Mars is, a, is empty, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's a real shock to people, I think, because all of our storytelling has populated all of these places. And the scientific understanding is quite a long way behind, uh, ahead, I mean, of the cultural yeah. understanding of what we're actually going to find in space. When, when, when did the first sort of Martian stories start? Oh, they start in, you know, the, uh, the 1800s and then into the early 1900s, because you have the observations of what were called the canals yeah. on Mars, which, you know, we know they're not canals now, but that starts to give people the idea there's a civilization out there. And you have the constant uh, underestimating of the size of space mm -hmm. and the expense of, like, if we were to actually build generation starship this would be all of the earth's resources to do it uh, uh, so then we start investing in uh to see devices to do this warp drive hyperdrive uh and they usually have like some kind of speculative scientific part to them uh and then our you know our science fiction really becomes more like our our fantasy because when you're, you're going into a hyperdrive, you're going through a portal to another world. It's the same transition. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. As, I, as, I, as I think about your perspective and as we're in this conversation, I start to see mm. fantasy fiction as kind of a reaction to, or it's a reaction almost within the, spec, the science mm. fiction, right? Like you have this techno-utopianism and then you have this, the dystopia, right? Mm. And then there's... Tolkien and Lewis who come along and say there's something in the past that we have to recover mm -hmm. in order yeah. to make right our relationship with the world mm -hmm. and I, I fundamentally think that's the right answer right um, but but I, we'll come back to that but so so you have so you have the rise of dystopian vision and then you have this this like transhumanist escape mm -hmm. like I I remember being on Clubhouse as we're talking about, and someone said to me, we will be an interstellar civilization. And I was like, you're certain, right? Like that's a, it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That I think I may have like, heard this conversation actually. Yeah, that sounds like a statement of faith, right? Mm. That's, that doesn't sound any different to me than I know that I will be resurrected in body fully at the end times and live in the kingdom of heaven with my Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. So I've started to think of this as escape eschatology. 
Mm, yeah. Right. And it, it's interesting that transhumanism, it became this, uh, a religion of, of the, the tech elite, uh, different levels of implementation, but it's definitely there. And, you know, you can see Elon Musk as someone intelligently working with that, you know, understanding the storytelling that he can apply to business through that, you know. But it also, and this I discovered through Clubhouse, there is a massive fear of transhumanism. The, the conspiracy community has taken this term humanism and applied it as um, the aim. This is what the elites are trying to do to us. They're trying to rob us of our humanity and turn us into uh, kind of replicants. Yeah. Uh, but then you actually look at what Silicon Valley is doing and you think, well, that is, that's a conspiracy theory, but the paranoia is not entirely unreasonable in relation to like the rhetoric that comes out of the tech community as well. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I don't know. Right, it's positive mm. by that. There's so much about those worlds that you could know, and I don't dig myself deep into it. But my mm. impression is basically, I, I'm very deeply skeptical and afraid of Mark Zuckerberg's model of the world. The metaverse mm. sounds like the Matrix to me. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, it is a it is an escape eschatology, right? Like we're gonna make life good for humans by just exiting the, the, the embodied world and moving mm -hmm. to this augmented virtual reality mm -hmm. where Zuckerberg's company will be the ultimate power, right? Mm -hmm. um, like let's, let's, you know, let the corporation own reality, right? That's a, that's a scary idea to me. Now, Musk is an interesting character to me. Like he's a, I think of him as a, he's a prophet of, of transhumanism, right? Like escape eschatology. Mm. We're going to mm. get to Mars, right? Yep. What the hell are we going to do on Mars? I don't know. Because like, <laughs> um, or, or we're going to become cyborgs, right? Neuralink. Yep. Yeah. He's working towards these ends in very sophisticated and powerful ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that, like, I don't think that Musk is power hungry the way that I see Zuckerberg is power hungry. Like, I think he, he's a believer of transhumanism, right? Mm. And he views transhumanism, I think, as the only counter to the way the world is going bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's very serious about the risk of artificial general intelligence. He tried to warn people about that for a long time, and nobody listened. So he mm -hmm. said, well, how do we make human beings a competitor with AGI? That's mm -hmm. what Neuralink is. Mm -hmm. Neuralink is the attempt to, to give human beings the powers that AGI would have. Um, but fundamentally, like, I don't think that, um, don't think the kingdom of heaven arises because we enter the digital space or move to another planet. Mm. I think we just find ourselves 
in a place that we're less able to handle, right? That, that we remove ourselves further and further from what we can effectively solve for. We haven't solved the problem mm -hmm. of, of, of existence as it stands, and we're just making it much, much harder for ourselves. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. people don't take seriously enough at all the fact that we are that we are evolved creatures that evolved specifically here. If you look at like the research that's coming out on the impact of light, right? Mm -hmm. How all of your hormonal systems are, are built off of the type of light you're exposed to. So blue light, blue light alerts you, right? And, um, and, and wakes you up. On Mars, sunsets are blue. Right. Keep discovering a uh, whole, uh, whole new like evolutionary pathways of bacteria mm -hmm. that that live within us, which we didn't know about. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, our balance within this ecosystem, it seems, um, like the best case scenario for a Mars colony is that people would die quickly because the colony would would fail of decompression. The worst case scenario would be like constant plagues and epidemics kind of spilling out the human body when it's moved out its uh, natural ecosystem and, and even more horrifying things. I mean, I the whole cyberpunk movement, uh, which was science fiction's commentary on transhumanism, basically, the, the ideas were already emerging. And like the classic line from Bruce Sterling is that uh, and he's talking about corporations, you know, eventually, uh, anything they can do to a rat, they will do to a human, and there's nothing that they won't do to a rat. Uh, and you can see that in, in cyberpunk. It's this real terror of what happens when this technology is unleashed through corporate structures. It's a very postmodern response to modernism, really, uh, this deep critique of everything it might do. And it, uh, is our technology industry that bad? You know, the cyberpunk vision has had kind of 40 years to manifest and it, it hasn't manifested as envisioned, but parts of it are, are there. Certainly the information control is the thing that we're struggling with now in social media. Uh, and I think that's the thing that you know, Gibson was primarily thinking about, that we will be abstracted into, uh, we don't actually have to, experience of of entering the net corporeally but just staring into our phone is is the same experience we're being constantly abstracted uh back into our minds basically disembodied uh and that's that's the fear it is of the class of people who kind of long for disembodiment and there's something very christian in that as well that redemption will will exist somewhere beyond the body but that's uh, the weird thing. That's what's weird yeah. to me. Is that's not the Christian story. No, no, you're right. It's the corrupted Christian story. But it, it's, it yeah. shows up like most of the Christians that I grew up with mm -hmm. believed that the body was corrupt and that the soul mm -hmm. was was there, and that they were like they were just like New Agers. They believed they were spiritual beings having a physical experience, mm -hmm. and that. Ultimately, they would be redeemed when they, when they went to heaven, or in the end times, and the resumption. You know the, uh, what's the, 
what's the term, you know, Tim Leahy and the, the left behind, what is the term for that? The, the rapture. Uh, yeah, the rapture. Right. Yeah. But my understanding is that actually the Christian story is, is, is anti-Gnostic, right? Mm. The promise of Christ is you're going to have everlasting, everlasting life and the kingdom of heaven in your body. Mm -hmm. And that he, he's not as he, he comes back at with his body, right? When he comes mm -hmm. back, and that's, that's part of what's profound about his story. But there's this, there's this, this element of Gnosticism, which just keeps cropping up in our culture. There, that, that, that's, it, it happens over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think that transhumanism is essentially Gnostic as well, right? Mm -hmm. We we exit this this prison, mm -hmm. this this broken world, to go to the stars. That's that's a that's a vision of the kingdom of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. The reality of that is end up someplace that's far less hospitable for human life than than <laughs> this current place is, right? And that even if you get there you're you know such a tiny fraction of humanity would be able to exit to the stars to, you know mm -hmm. it's, it's not a solution and i have this sense and I, I keep thinking like it'd be fun to write a fantasy story or like a science fiction about this but i don't think that a human being can live on another human on another planet and be a human being i think mm -hmm. that if you I, i'm like i'm not against the idea of humanity seeding the stars but i think the reality is that what seeding the stars would mean would be radically re-engineering human beings to such a degree that they're aliens right mm. because their their hormonal systems their response to light their response to gravitation you know like there's there's their their evolutionary psychology right their response like what if you're on a planet where where the dominant color is like the like instead of chlorophyll it's something purple Nightmares are soothed by green space, right? Yeah. Like that, 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 that version of humanity that thrives on zeta reticula isn't recognizable as human to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's the same is true of the, 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 the cyborg hybrids, right? Living in, in digital mm. space. Like they're not, they're not really human anymore in some sense. Mm. Um, so I don't think that's the answer to the problem that we have. No, I think these are, you these know, are the argument that, that, that I make about science fiction is that it's a failed mythology. Yeah. Uh, this kind of science fiction, you know, getting out into the stars, hyperdrives, replacing our body with machines, uploading to, to AIs. It's the mythology of, of modernity. Mm -hmm. And it works a while until you start to see the limits of modernity and this ideological constructs that you're living within. Uh, but then the believers have to kind of iterate this mythology further and further to keep it uh, functional in some way. And it becomes more and more inhuman and more and more religious as you, as you do that. It just ends up at all of the same places the earlier mythologies have have uh, ended up and i think that's one of the main forces in my thinking driving me to uh think of, uh, we're we're standing
the, the boundary of some paradigm shift, a paradigm shift in science, how we fundamentally comprehend the world or in consciousness. I don't know specifically, but you look at all of the things that, that don't work in our mythology now, and it all says kind of late stage, we're waiting for a new way to see things. And I think what interests me is that maybe fantasy is in some way uh, keyed into that new way of seeing things, basically. Yeah. So you said, I was listening to your conversation with David Fuller on Herbal Wisdom, and you said, I, I, I can't call exactly to mind. It was something like, mm. you know, transhumanism is a mythology or science fiction is a mythology of escape, basically. I think, I think mm. around the line. Maybe I'm transposing my own idea into your mouth. <laughs> is no, it, I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and that's why it shows up in the communities who are seeking escapism. Yeah, and so as, what I the the thought I had was that what we need is a mythos, mm. a rectification of our relationship with the natural world. Mm. And, you know, this may sound like hubris, but I actually think that's what I'm doing. Mm. Right? It's maybe not, I, that's the praxis, right? Mm -hmm. Like Evolve Move Play is a praxis that, that is related to that mythos maybe. Mm -hmm. But I think it's in Tolkien and Lewis. And I think there's something very fascinating mm. about the fact that these two deeply Christian men put so much paganism mm -hmm. and so much oh. so much love of nature into their stories yeah. yeah you know the criticism of uh of tolkien by the younger fantasy fans i, I had this argument there and they're like oh tolkien is just like an early series and we've replaced it with like wheel of time um and, and, and like Game of Thrones and more dynamic writing styles. And the criticism is always, well, the characters just spend pages and pages walking across the landscape. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not what's wrong with it. That's the point. It's <laughs> reconnecting you with the land that you have swallowed under cities and roads. And, uh, and it gives the kid living in the suburb uh, an experience again of actually uh, crossing the landscape. And, you know, and that's part of the mythic meaning uh, of the story. It's a reminder. It's, it's, yeah. There's something, there's some difference here between a reminder and a escape. Right. Well, there's me because yeah. like, you'd say that you're escaping yeah. into this world where you can move through the land, but that's mm -hmm. the, that's the world you came from. That's the norm. Mm -hmm right? And Tolkien's reminding you of who, of what, of what a human being is and what it, mm. what it is. And the themes are, are the rectification, right? And the rectification through, through the personal sacrifice of Frodo, right? Mm. Um, and so to me, so there, I think it's fascinating that one Tolkien is this huge font of inspiration for the counterculture, right? And yet he's this deeply Christian, almost reactionary figure. Mm -hmm. 
but he populates his world with with pre-Christian figures from Norse mythology, right? Mm. Like, and I, I was thinking about this when I was reading Lewis recently. I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids, and I was thinking about okay, so you have Aslan, right? But you have satyrs and dryads, mm-hmm. and It's almost like there's something within the shamanic pagan tradition that's mm. bubbling up that mm-hmm. has to be reincorporated in order to have a mythos that can serve, right? Mm. But it still needs to be maybe in service of that overarching idea of agapic love, mm. which is represented in Frodo and Harry Potter, mm. right? Like, like, I think it's so interesting to me how Harry Potter... Harry Potter is the the first truly sort of transformative fantasy fiction that happens after Tolkien, in a way. Mm-hmm. and it's it's not Tolkienian, right? It's it's this whole she takes this entirely different route into the same type of place. It's a similar school, though there was. Uh... Interesting essay, it was published on Eon, identifying uh, the Oxford School of Fantasy, because Tolkien and Lewis yeah. um, basically rewrote the, the English curriculum, the English literature curriculum at Oxford to, to base it on all of these old myths, mm-hmm. essentially. And then you have all of these writers either coming out of that program or very closely associated to it, uh, Philip Pullman, or one of the young adult writers she was brilliant i've forgotten her name uh and then people like jk rowling as well and it's if if we were to stand outside you know anglo culture and look at it you would see it like very clearly as kind of a religious revivalist movement within a literary form you know if the same thing was happening in kind of uh muslim nations for instance but because our culture is within itself it's very hard to see that uh that's what's through this uh an indian writer a young woman who identified this cultural um trend what you've what you've been saying though about escape uh, makes me think about like this constant fight between escape and escapism Mm -hmm. so you know c.s lewis makes this quote that um Jailers hate escape. Uh, you know, your culture doesn't want you to escape from it. And that's his argument for fantasy. And then uh, most people attribute it to Michael Moorcock, makes like a quip back. And he says, actually, jailers love escapism. It's escape they can't stand. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and I think maybe this connects as well to like Viveki's thinking on self-deception that we can create this mythos and we're all trying to find a route to escape from the problems of kind of material existence fundamentally and out of the pain and the suffering but whatever mythos it is be it like you know the hard science fiction transhumanist route or the fantasy escape into secondary realms it can be functional and it can actually provide an escape because it 
you know, if nothing else, fantasy can like seed desires into you. So if you've never walked across the countryside yeah. and then you read Tolkien, you've been given fucking go with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that might actually power you there ultimately, or to find you're in a heroic being, you know, uh, whatever it may be. But that same thing can also just, you can also use it to just indulge self-deception. And like, and my, I, I have many arguments with the fantasy and science fiction community because of its kind of um, acceptance of the self-deceptive roots, which are very commercialized as well. This is what the industry wants to sell to people for its storytelling. So it's a very, it's a very difficult game to determine whether this, these improvised mythologies are being used functionally or dysfunctionally for escape or for escapism. And I, I, I bash around these poles continually. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like in my own life, I've felt a transformative power through Tolkien that mm. the few things have transformed me like that. I feel like I've seen that many other people too. People, people do things differently because they read mm -hmm. that. Um, I don't know. I mean, it'd be very easy to fall into a kind of post hoc narrative construction on this and be like, well, obviously, obviously people don't get that from the Belgariad, but uh, I'm not really sure that I can say that. You know? <laughs> I had an incredibly close relationship to the Belgariad. There you go. <laughs> when I was a teenager, you know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try and go back and read it now because I'm too scared of what I would find yeah. there. I tried. It, uh, yeah, it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, There's another uh, tendency which is, is very strong in the science fiction and fantasy community. And it, it's the movement from the kind of mass media model of what this was, where there were a few creators who could be put in slots on the bookshelves or the cinema screen, and everyone else is left watching them and absorbing their take on a mythos. And it's becoming, um, it's becoming a creator culture. You know, every fan is on some level a writer and a creator as well and going through that journey themselves and i think what that does is um force you in a way to test out like uh, this is being too idealistic but you know if you're if us that you're creating is working for other people that's some indication that there is some real value in it uh, of course, you could just be weaving self-deceptions as well. So I'm trying to balance that out as I talk, but it's becoming something more than just consuming media. It, it's, it's becoming enmeshed in our creativity. And maybe this is what we should always be doing with our myths is personally rewriting them uh, and understanding them on that level. You know, this is why I, I spend a lot of time on criticism because I needed to do that personally. If I'd never kind of voiced myself as a critic of fantasy and sci-fi, I would never have developed the understanding of it that I have. It would have been too internalized to do that. 
So we have to enter into these processes of, of criticism of the stories that we love. And this is why the fantasy and sci-fi writing communities spend so much time you know, on forums and now YouTube channels talking about all of this. And I think there's something healthy in that. Uh, and then as that, that grows, we become the, the creators of it as well. And all of these writers that we can name now, you know, some I don't like so much, like Brandon Sanders. His writing doesn't appeal to me, or someone like Joe Abercrombie, or, um, you know, they're all very insightful into the field. They're not hack writers just trying to imitate something they've read. They're, there's a lot of intelligence behind uh, what, they're, what they're creating. And that to me all seems part of what we need to do to create these like new functional myths. So Vermeer, he talks a lot about this idea of, of, um, of bleed, right? Mm -hmm. How do you bleed yeah. from, from one mm -hmm. activity to another? You know, and he gives the example of jeet forms yeah. as a form of serious play. Mm -hmm. My work is another example of that. And, you know, there's this, there's this way in which, in which science fiction is, in, is growing the elements of our religion, right? Mm -hmm. Like Comic-Con is a giant religious celebration, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Paul Vanderclay has argued that like the cinema is basically like the temples of the Greeks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that it's a it's a it's a spectacle in which we can go stand in awe of something, and that, you know my my work is all about this idea that you have to then go embody it, right? You have to then go seek it. Right, and that like mm -hmm. parkour and martial arts are fundamentally like how you how you become like Aragorn. Like you can't you cannot you can never read enough fantasy to change your character towards being like Aragorn. Yeah. You can only yeah you can only get the image and then go try to do it. I, I was listening to when Verveki and Peterson had their first conversation um, on on the podcast, right? So after, after you know, they had conversations before Peterson became a huge deal, um, but that yeah. was the first time they ch chatted since then. Peterson was talking about the idea of, of Israel, right? That Jacob wrestles with God and, and he wins. And then he's given this name, which means wrestles with God. And that becomes the name of his people. And, and he asked the question like, well, maybe that's the correct relationship to have to God, right? That, you, that you're wrestling with the divine. Mm -hmm. And the thought I had was like, how can you become the type of person who can wrestle with the divine without wrestling? Right? You have to, yeah. go, you have to go do it. You have to go cultivate the virtue in yourself. You have to embody mm -hmm. it. Um, and I had an interesting interaction with folks in my community who said, well, well, what if you should dance with the divine? So that's probably a good relationship to think about it too, right? Mm -hmm. But again, you have, how? How do you know if you haven't physically been there, right? You mm -hmm. haven't physically been in that. And if we, 
we see that redemption within the world. Mm -hmm. We need to act it out. We need to go mm -hmm. redeem ourselves through connection to the world. Mm -hmm. We need to go take those walks and those adventures as Tolkien did. So that's... Yeah. But uh, why are so many of us as kind of like men in our 30s and 40s and, and 50s increasingly, you know, still playing with our, our childhood fantasies in a way and rewriting them into much more sophisticated psychological forms in kind of the grimdark literature and all of that. So it, is there a, a condemnation in there? Is it time to let go of childish things and go and live these adventures however they come you know um there's a fascinating documentary about larping which you could include into this yeah. you know religious manifestation as well and it follows a of uh, mostly young men on the top and uh how one of them he becomes he's very shy in turn and he becomes the general of an army in a larp and three years later he's come out he's running his own business he's married and he has children and he's very explicit you know it was being that character in the larp that gave me the transformation into then doing it in life so is that the ideal should we all be embodying you know frodo's journey or whatever or is there are we are we facing you know what jordan peterson is pointing at like the crisis of masculinity the, the, the failure to pick up our burden and carry it crucifix like into the world also coming from mythology or is there a kind of um, a deeper value to why we're still dialoguing with our fantasy and, and sci-fi realities I ask myself this because obviously I'm investing a lot of time yeah. uh, like as a professional in the field into these things what do you think Ruth? I think it's a good question. It's a very interesting question, mm. right? I I remember being in my teens and thinking, man, I would love there to be a X-Men movie. And I want new Star Wars movies and I want all these things. And now mm. I think I can't like can this stuff die already, please? Like <laughs> I never see another commercial for a Marvel movie, I'll be happy. Yeah. Right. Um, there is a point at which it's like, why are we so attached to this? There's there's, you know, the number of people who identify the religion as Jedi grows mm -hmm. every year. But Jedi is just bad Taoism, right? <laughs> it is, right? And, and, Harry yeah, and the Jedis are, are a kind of sadistic military order yeah, of yeah. monks. They're like possible outcome of zen buddhism <laughs> the, the gray the gray jedis are right right i don't like there's this whole storyline that happens in the in in the um in the cartoons only where you meet the idea of the gray jedi who are like you actually have to integrate the passions and you're like mm -hmm. yeah that's right like like the jedi are actually not cool um mm, yeah. um but so yeah and i see i see all these you know these men in their in their 40s who are you know to be honest they're grotesquely obese often and they're deeply unembodied and they they mm. don't know how to 
be in a relationship with a woman and they keep going back to these things and investing themselves in these things. Mm. There is a point of, of, you know, we need to put away childish things, but there's also Mm. this thing where like stories are inexhaustible in a way, Mm. right? Like when you read Tolkien when you're 15, it teaches you something. And when you read it, when you're 30, you get something else out of it. The best stories do that. Mm. Um, And so I think there's, There is the Peter Pan phenomenon, right? Of the, the eternal boy in our culture is something mm-hmm. we have to reckon with. Why is, why is that happening? Mm. I think that is part of the reason why these stories are so, are so um, persistent, right? This, this part of our st- storytelling is so huge is because, because they're, because we don't want to grow up. Yeah. Maybe what's maybe what's behind growing up is is hard, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I was listening to uh, that conversation with Bishop Barron, right? Uh, Bishop Barron, Jean Vicky, Jordan Peterson, and and uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan Pajot. The conversation was mentioned multiple times, and and Bishop Barron was talking about um, the con- the the idea that the consolation of faith something that's going to be taken away for someone who goes deep mm. into yeah yeah that definitely stood out yeah there. and uh and i was working on my sprained ankle <laughs> as i thought about that and i'm 39 yeah. right and like mm. how long i can sustain the level of movement performance that i currently have is is a real question right Mm-hmm. it's going to go away someday maybe maybe it's a year from now maybe it's 10 years from now maybe it's maybe at 60 i'll be you know some kind of freak right um mm-hmm. but there's going to be a point at which a lot of things that i've done are no longer available to me. Mm-hmm. and if this was my pathway into to connection with something deeper um, mm-hmm part of maybe going to the next level of connection is is is, is the, the the death of it right the grief mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. and, the, and the having it stripped away from you so you can see that mm-hmm. it wasn't the full thing it was just pointing at the full thing and maybe that's maybe that the disin the, maybe there's a point where which you should be disillusioned with fantasy fiction and science fiction you should say this story isn't serving anymore. So I need to go back yeah. to its sources. I need to go deeper. Yeah. And maybe maybe there's a point at which you get to come back to it too. Mm. And say, I get to see this in a new way. Um, I don't know. How that our mean? archetypes of those of those stories are um, you know, the, the hero's journey stuff, Joseph Campbell. It's it's the young man's journey it's the adolescence journey and we rehearse this over and over again and we're very good at telling that in our culture um and like we do it in something like kung fu panda and like i i really i really like kung fu panda as a movie it's very uh it's very well done in many levels but the basic story of kung fu panda is someone who has put in no effort to life and is gifted with all of the the talents as an outcome and we kind of tell that story uh, a lot 
because it's easy to tell to people. But if you look at, um, like I, I mentioned it in our exchanges before we uh, did this interview, like uh, Robert Bly and the men's movement, who I know through uh, an English storyteller, Martin Shaw. Uh, and you can you can find a lot of the archives of like the Minnesota Men's Conference where they're telling a lot of stories from like um, uh, traditional native cultures around. You know, and these stories are really brutal and they all reflect on the ways that men fail in life and destroy themselves and get trapped in their own ego and age and weaken and die and go blind. Uh, but then find some redemption, you know, beyond this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of what, what we're nodding to in something like Grimdark. Like we don't, to my mind, it doesn't really succeed in taking it there in the way that some of like the mythic storytellers do. Um, because it's still, it goes into nihilism instead. You know, nihilism is much easier than suffering basically. It's much easier to say there's no meaning possible than I failed to find meaning in my life. Uh, I did the easy things instead of the hard things. Yeah. Uh, I'm read, read a grimdark novel and then read A Monster Calls. Yeah. Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know who I actually think is really... I, I, I think my favorite fantasist of the moment, like is actually is, um, more and more, I think Daniel Abraham is the most powerful mm. voice of our generation of fantasy, right? Mm. I think that the Baker is more compelling in certain ways, right? That he's, you know, he's, he's more brilliant in his intellect in the way that he delivers it. But, mm -hmm. you know, like the expanse is basically the confrontation with the fact that like, no level of technology will remove the problem of how humans interact with each other. Mm. Like that's, that's the story of the expanse. The expanse is you get a God box, right? Humans are still going to be terrible to each other. But mm. if you look at the, 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 the series of novels that starts with, um, I think it's the autumn war. Um, and like, uh, I can't remember um, the, the name of them, but it's his first series. So there's, I think, th three or four novels uh, that are all kind of in this series in the same world. But they're, they're moral meditations on a much deeper level than the rest mm. of those out there. And, and they, they have redemptive stories and arcs, and they have characters who really change in important ways that, that are relevant to the types of ways that you might want to change as a human being. And it's, you know, I think it's really strange, like that people think Tolkien is black and white or, or morally unsophisticated. It's like, mm. yes, Sauron is pure evil, but he's hardly a character, right? Mm. He's, he's like a machine that exists, that, that drives the confrontation between good and evil in the individual mm -hmm. characters. And, and the characters succeed and fail right? And they suffer tremendously through the mm. process. Yeah. There's something incredibly real about the way that he writes that. And I think it came from his experience, right? Like Frodo, 
Frodo is tortured mm. and he never recovers. Yeah. Um, Frodo, Frodo doesn't get the elixir of life and take it back to his village and like live happily ever after. Mm. That's not the story, right? Frodo is marginalized forever mm. by his experience. The, the comparison that I make a lot is um, Lord of the Rings to 1984 yeah. and Orwell and Tolkien are, are near contemporaries and Sauron is big brother. Yeah. You know, he's an abstract uh, principle mm -hmm. of what evil becomes, what power becomes when it is unlimited yeah. and unbounded. And of course, any of the characters in Lord of the Rings can pick up the ring and become that, that evil. And it's something that I have these occasional discussions with, with people in like Tolkien because they want to think of Sauron as a character that you could like write on a trading card and give him stats yeah, yeah. for his, his strength and so on. Uh, and that's actually quite significant because it's a, it's a different way of understanding what we're dealing with, with the story. That if you understand that this secondary world is not, world it is symbolic essentially in the greater sense of that then you can actually play with it in a in a different in a different way but if we want to commercialize these things and i do think it's the force of commercialization that is behind so much of this then you have to turn it into uh an understandable quantity something commodifiable that you can give to people over and over again and you can't do that with Tolkien. Yeah. There's just one, basically. I think there's also this drive towards a, a kind of rationalism, right? Mm. Yeah, like, absolutely. That's it as well. Yeah, like like Martin and Abercrombie, they're like, the past wasn't like that. This is what the past was really like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what that's what failed so much for me in the wisdom of crowds. It's like you've compressed the industrial revolution and the uh, the you know the, the 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 labor revolts into you know a hundred pages, and and you you you've taken all the moral dimension out of it, right? As if there was no one who's truly idealistic around Len, right? No one who actually wanted something better. Um, mm. As if the the American revolutionaries, for all their faults, weren't actually calling a better world into into being, mm. right? As if there was no distinction between the Stalinists and you know the American Revolution and the French revolutionaries. Like it's all just just power, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's just that's not actually a good representation of the past at all. And everyone's mm. not, you know, people do have moral motivations. They do have a desire for redemption and growth. And that's not represented anymore, it seems like. Um, through this strange desire to make things more real. There's a, an ongoing argument about world building in the writing community, because it's one of these things like the secondary world, it's this term that kind of emerges, and then it becomes very dominant in people's thinking of how you write fantasy or science fiction. And it's actually significant because world building is this literalizing into the rational of everything that was uh, symbolic before. And there's a, a horror writer, Nick Mamatis, uh, who I like, and he, 
he took this down in one line. So the problem with world building is we don't actually know what the world is. Mm -hmm. uh, so what the world building really is, is just like the implementation of your ideology. So when Joe Abercrombie is like doing the world building for that novel, which I haven't read, you know, so I'm making assumptions. He's really just kind of playing out wherever his mind is at the time, which is probably him being English and knowing that culture is quite a post-modern culture uh, in its assumptions about power. Uh, everyone is just power hungry. There is no moral authority. These yeah, are very, very basic English assumptions. Very Foucault, right? Yeah. Power is everything. Everything is structured by power relationships. That's that's mm. the real motivation. Um, and I find that to be an utterly bankrupt view and just a false view of, of, mm. of human motivation. Um, so my children are, are home and need to take a bath and get ready for bed. So I need to, uh, to, to end the conversation there. It's really fun. Um, I'm surprised we didn't get yeah. into the intersection of the, the Peterson Verveke stuff and fantasy, but I, I guess I had a lot that I wanted to, to share. Um, <laughs> maybe we can have another chat. It's a deep area. There's yes. a lot to think about there in our stories. And I mean, Peterson was the, the guy to crack that open for a lot of people in this kind of phase of YouTube dialoguing and podcasting. And so, yeah, it's really cool to talk to you, Ray. Yeah, Damien. Yes. It's good to connect and uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Cool.